0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another busy podcast where we talk about the behind the scenes of the creative industry. I am Raphael, your host for today. And our guest is Rick Many. Um, he is a documentary filmmaker here based in Berlin. He's our man in Berlin. And I say that not just to praise. He's actually like <laughs> branding himself as this. Uh, you can check his website. And yeah, I've been a personal fan because first, Rick is a Old member of the busy community has been with us for a long time, and and it's really nice to see all the work he, he has done and follow, um, yeah, the, the, a bit of his journey, and yeah, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I think like the first thing I wanted to ask you is is mainly how you got into filmmaker. Was this always a, a passion of yours, or it was like some Something that came along the way? How, how was it?
1: Um, well, when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to, wanted to become a newspaper journalist and all through high school. And I, I put out a little music fanzine back then because I was really into the music scene in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And then I got to college and started watching lots of movies, and I was in New York City and got to go to these art house cinemas after class, and I'd see a double feature for $5 or something, and I really fell in love with cinema, mostly European cinema, especially like the French New Wave films and the Italian neorealist films and stuff, and then I decided, oh, maybe I don't want to be a journalist after all. I want to become a filmmaker, so, you know, I was like 20, 21, 22 at that time. And then I applied to a couple of film schools back then. They all turned me down. Um, I'm very glad they turned me down because I think at that point I was just too young. I didn't really know what I wanted to tell stories about. And if you're going to go to film school, it's a very, it's a huge commitment. Uh, These days it's extremely expensive. So unless you have come from a rich family, it's something you really have to think long and hard about if that's what you want to do, because there's really the film school path you can go down. And there are lots of other opportunities without film school. It really depends on the type of person you are. And if you're someone who learns well in a school environment and thrives, that might be the way for you to go. If you're someone who's really a, a DIY type and, and just likes to, you can learn from watching YouTube videos and stuff, then then maybe that's a better path for you.
0: Nice. Um, that's that's very interesting to, to hear because when I was also doing um the research on, yeah, your previous films and, and, and everything. Um, I see that you're also an educator, right? You, you, you teach filmmaking also in in film schools. Mm. So I- it's interesting to see that, like, this is not also the, the only way, I- even though, like, you were kind of involved on this film school kind of um, world. And I wanted to ask, how, how did that came about? You always wanted to teach. Is, it was something that, you know, like, it was... Something, oh, I'm gonna make some extra cash and then you ended up liking, how did it came about this whole teaching? Um, kind of by accident, <laughs> actually. Uh, let's see, this was maybe 10,
1: 12 years ago. Um, I got asked to teach at a film workshop in Romania. It's an international film workshop for documentary. And it was a former classmate of mine from film school who's from Romania and she and her partner, who's from Georgia, They organized it together and they were just looking for tutors from different countries to come. And I think we bumped into each other at a film festival in Warsaw like a few months earlier and then got back in touch with each other. And then she offered she asked me if I could do this. And I didn't really have much of a clue what I was doing. It was just that there were projects, documentary projects. It was all filmmakers from the Black Sea region. So a lot of them from former Soviet republics. And in Romania, Bulgaria, you know, all along the Black Sea, and Turkey. So it was an interesting group of people, and they were all had documentary projects that they were developing. They were trying to figure out what the story is and how to tell the story, how to get money to make it and stuff. So they brought in people who were working in the industry from different different countries and stuff, and producers and directors and writers and stuff to kind of help them out. So basically, I was just asked to read these projects and talk to people and and give them advice and it, it was pretty natural because it was just basically what I do all the time and helping, you know, making films. Um, and that kind of led, one thing kind of led to the next. I saw that the Met Film School in Berlin was, uh, had just opened up and this is 2012. And uh, there's an article in, in the Ex-Berliner magazine that I read about it, you know, the English language magazine here. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I never heard about it. So I just, I looked up the website of the school and sent them an email. And then the director of the school wrote me back like a, the next day or so and said, hey, what well, you want to come by and have a chat? And so I was there and suddenly in her office and we'd been talking for a while. And, it, you know, after an hour or so, she's like, well, you know, would you like to teach class next month? <laughs> and I'm like, well, sure, oh, okay, next month. okay. And then she, it was a, the BA students and, and, They had a a section, a module that was documentary. You know, they did mostly fiction stuff, but they had a section that was documentary. And then she, it was quite flexible what I did. So we talked about different ideas, and then she kind of gave me a chance to do it. And I enjoyed it. And then that kind of led to being asked to teach over and over again there.
0: Yeah, nice. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah you're, you're saying that like okay i came to berlin mm. romania you're talking about um your passion for like european films and yeah i wanted to ask you like why did you choose berlin that now like in a website and everything's like our man in berlin <laughs> and how <laughs> These American men came to hmm. Berlin and made Berlin. It's his home. I think
1: Berlin chose me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had the chance to spend a semester abroad in Vienna in ni- uh, the spring of 1989, and we didn't know back then that the world was about to change. This was just you know a few months before the Berlin Wall came down, and I got to travel around a lot in Eastern Europe. And I went to the Soviet Union, and I went to Berlin. And I also went to East Berlin from West Berlin. I did the one-day visa thing coming to East Berlin in the summer of 89. And there there was no idea that the wall was about to come down a few months later. And I just really liked Berlin. And I was here with a buddy of mine. And this was like a year or two after the Wim Wenders film came out. Um, Wings of Desire is the English title, but Der Himmel über Berlin. So we were looking for all the locations from the film. We were trying to find all these places. It It was kind of and it's just a big it's in trying to find all these locations we just saw a lot of the city and I was like I'm gonna when I graduate i want to move back here so I went back to New York and finished my studies and while I was in New York the, the wall came down and then I decided I really want to go to Berlin and then I after I graduated I moved here
0: was the breaking point no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> yeah the breaking point yeah but now I gotta move to Berlin but basically
1: you know I was in New York and after I'd had this European experience I, I just kind of wanted to go back to Europe so I I didn't really try to get a job in New York or or anything and and I applied to a couple film schools then and got turned down and and then um, actually I had a my bachelor's degrees in English so I thought okay maybe I can teach English and that's really how I got started here I mean first I was washing dishes in a Greek restaurant as an illegal immigrant and then I got an offer to teach a teach English at a language school and they helped me get a visa so I became a a legal resident of berlin (laughs) and then uh at some point i started going to film school here
0: yeah nice interesting like and that that's ties with the next question i had for you it's about like as you said in the beginning i was doing like dishes and everything and this is often the case with film students that want to make into the film industry that they have to do other jobs Mm. or even like I don't know if you always know, like, I guess coming from journalism Mm -hmm. is something that it's kind of related more to to documentary when you're, like, exploring other people's story and telling a story that Mm -hmm. is not, like, completely created. Um, But sometimes along the way, especially in the beginning, you have to fund your projects, your stuff, with not really just being in film, right? um and i even like was sawing, seeing your portfolio back then and i saw that you also did some commercial work and this is one of the things that people do mm-hmm. in the beginning like they just go start doing commercial work because they know there is money there until they hone in their skills and then they can go in the path they are more like passionate about mm-hmm. and how i'm interested to, to listen like how was it in the beginning for you like w- were you, like, doing all this stuff, like, okay, I'm going to do commercial to fund my films later? And, and how was it, like, the journey from, yeah, washing dishes to just play school for, like, okay, now I can fund my own films and, and so um, on?
1: Um, I haven't done a whole lot of commercial work. That kind of came a little later. What really happened is I have to kind of remember at this time that we're talking about the early 1990s there was no really good video format that was there was like high-end video that the tv stations used and then there was vhs which was like these big vhs tapes that were really bad (laughs) so like 16 millimeter and super eight millimeter were really the only thing we had and so i started making these super these 16 millimeter films and it was really expensive to buy the film stock and to process them at the lab so i was teaching english and i at some point i got I get started getting jobs as a translator, translating German texts into English. And that's how I financed my first films, some short films I made um, on 16 millimeter, And the film, I just had to talk to the film labs. In, in some cases, the I was working with film students from the film school here, and some of them had extra film from other productions. So usually I didn't have to buy the film, but I had to pay for all the processing at the labs. And I would talk to the labs, and I was like, I can't pay you everything right away, but they would let me pay over like make monthly payments. So I just remember some, you know, it might take me six months to pay all the bills and stuff, but it, it worked somehow. And then I, I, I teamed up with some, I got to know some film students and we were kind of able to use some equipment from the school. And, um, back then there weren't, weren't very many of us Americans here. So I was still kind of exotic and people were wondering what I was doing here and, and we're, generally quite helpful so that happened and i had this experience with my first short film delphi 1830 it's a three-minute experimental film i shot on 16 millimeter with a, a, a wind-up bolex camera you hand wind mm-hmm. it and i shot it one frame at a time wow uh, mm-hmm. and then i teamed up with one of my classmates who, who was doing sound robert Henke, who's become a quite a famous musician these days and electronic musician Mono Lake he has this group Mono Lake and and he did sound for it so it's just the two of us who made this film and then the film school started they had a connection to the film school and I they helped me like start submitting to film festivals and it started playing at all these festivals and I remember I got invited to go to London to show her at a film festival and they put us in, up in a nice hotel and and stuff and I was like wow this is kind of fun <laughs> this is, yeah. and then you know I was playing in australia and in south america and all over the u.s and europe and i'm like wow it's just this little three minute film and it, it kind of gave encouraged me to make another one and then i made sort of an improvised sort of pseudo fictional film on the streets of berlin and i, I it's a sort of like the old journalist part of almost journalist part of me kind of wanted to deal with like all the changes i wanted to show something about the change how how the city was changing dramatically in the early 90s but i wanted to have sort of a fictional story that had a little bit of control over so i had these three guys one was a professional actor and the other two were just they're all old school friends and they they kind of improvised the dialogue but we had what was going to happen i already planned out and we got to those locations we are filming without any shooting permits, totally illegally, doing everything in the night. And um, we just made this short film called Next Time Everything Will Be Better. It's about these three anarchists who are blowing things up in Berlin. <laughs> <Kind of laughs> we had, you know, fake dynamite and stuff. And, and yeah, so it, it just one one film always led to the next that played at some film festivals. And then I started making another film and and. It, it, i i've had a couple of lucky breaks not huge things but i had one was that when i got accepted into film school here my second time around i um they took me i had this idea that i wanted to go back to california where i'm from to for my 10-year high school class reunion and i was like i want to make a film basically i wanted to go to my reunion and i didn't have the money to do it and i was like why don't i make a film about it like And some guys that I liked back then and some that I didn't like. And then the local TV station would like the idea. So they got involved and then my school and then there was suddenly money to do it. And I was going back to my hometown in California with uh, a camera student and a sound student and me and um, six hours of 16 millimeter film material. And we were supposed to make a 45 minute film for German TV. And it turned out to be a feature length film and it's 73 minutes and the TV station's like, yeah, we'll show it. We're not going to pay you any extra money, but we're going to show it. And then that kind of opened a new door to me that suddenly I had a TV station involved, a German public TV station. And that film played good guys and bad guys played at some film festivals. And it that kind of one story always led to the to the next, you know
0: yeah oh that, that's 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 really interesting and and this was another another question that i had like related to i see, of like your, your latest film um the straight guys we were like in the premiere mm. Lovely the film by the way if you guys <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> if you guys have the opportunity go check it out um but in that film and in other films that i've seen that we've done you you kind of uh, travel a lot so you kind of have to pack light and lean or As you were saying, like, it's just me and and two other people. And because the difference I see that many times in documentary filmmaking and traditional, like, more um, narrative filmmaking is the crew. Mm. Like, um, even, like, music videos, you have, like, many, many lights. And then you have, like, three people for light department, grip and everything. And you have hundreds of Mm. people in film. And when you go to documentary like many times it's like a most like a, almost a one-man band kind of thing right mm. like how is it um with you do you have people that you work um usually with like often um, you're almost this one-man band and how how much you know like equipment you bring because mm. many people are like oh no i have to cover everything so i need like five different lenses, two cameras, <laughs> and I have this yeah. light. but like you, you can't really have it when you're always on the go and you're always on the move yeah. because you're probably, you're carrying your own gear, so you want to make it light, so it doesn't, yeah, it's a uh. burden on yourself. <laughs> how, how is this um, your process of, like, the crew and production mm. in, in the documentary filmmaking kind of um, work?
1: It's every film is different, but it but um, there's sort of an old saying that the best camera is the one that's in your pocket or kind of whatever you have. So, I I'm not someone who gets obsessed with having like the fanciest new camera. Um, It just doesn't interest me that much. I'm always trying to find the tools that fit the project I want to do and the type of situation I'll be in, whether I'm filming alone or with a crew. Just so that we, if we're going to some like with the straight guys part of the trip, we knew that we would be taking a helicopter to this island in the Bering Strait, and there was a strict limit on how much we could take with us, so we had to really design our, our gear and our our whole strategy for that shoot with how we would, how much could we take with us, and that also means like, what can you take to wear, And you know, your private things and stuff, and, and really, we had to weigh everything and, and really think it through and, and try to keep it kind of minimum, that was... We had, I had a camera guy, a sound guy and me, and then the two people are two characters that were traveling with us. So it's basically five of us. Sometimes I shoot on my own, but that's usually just when I'm starting a new project when there's no money yet. So I have to start, start filming something. And then I cut together a teaser to start pitching to people and, and showing it around to try to get money. That's how it kind of works. And that's where I really think this digital technology is fantastic because it's, I mean, this is a, In some ways, it's a great time to become a filmmaker or a you know a media maker or whatever you want to call yourself, because you can you can start and you can actually produce something with very little money and you don't need a whole lot of equipment. And you know, with BZ you can just rent equipment from colleagues for really cheap and you know make deals and stuff. And that's that's really great. I mean, I can start projects. I've had I've had stuff that I've been pitching where I just had like some shots from my iPhone because that's all I had with me when something happened and that there are shots in the straight guys that were from my iPhone because that that's all I had with me at that particular moment when something happened and um, these days you can kind of mix it all quite well it, it was very different when I started you had to really have some kind of a proposal that you pitched and you kind of had to wait you basically had to wait until someone
0: gave you money because it was so expensive to get started yeah nice yeah um, I was interested because like I've been doing like music videos, for example, and then I see like this Ari 4.5 mm. kilowatts, and then it just the thing is like 30 kilos probably. Yeah. And like, it's not feasible you know, in every new hour, is on the go. Um, and it's funny that you, you bring up this, like, oh, I used to have to pitch and, and do this, all this stuff. Because, yeah, the kind of the next two questions kind of that I have is, one how it's different now and back then like how do you used to fund your films and how do you fund your films now is is it changed or is kind of the same process and another i think it's kind of related um is how you find the stories Mm. because first before you pitch anything you have to get a story that you want to tell through the documentary film Mm. right and then i how do you actually go and, and find these stories? Do you, it's just like your journalist that you go and, and research uh, and, or, or how does it come about? How do you decide what story you want to tell next? Um,
1: the stories kind of come to me is, it's over time. It's become like that. Like, uh, let's see, if we go back to that class reunion film, I wanted to go to this class reunion. So that kind of, that led to that story. And then after I sh- finished shooting that, I, I, I went and visited my mother who at that time lived in a town called Branson, Missouri, which is kind of like a Christian Las Vegas in the middle of the US. And I hadn't I was there once when I was a little kid, but I didn't remember much of it. And I went there and visited her and saw that the town had only about 4,000 people at the time, but it had all these big big theaters and they had more theater seats than Las Vegas and Broadway combined. And all these people who were stars like when I was a little kid, like in the 70s and stuff. Moved there and they built these big theaters and the audiences came by the busload to them like a lot of older people like people my parents age would come there by and bus tours and would see these people on stage i thought this is a really strange place so then suddenly i was like i want to make a film about this town so that became my next film which was actually my graduate thesis film from film school and then when that while i was making that film i met some people who who uh, are musicians in that area in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri, who were like hillbilly, modern day hillbillies, you know, with the overalls and big bellies and big beards, and and played a mixed a mixture of traditional hillbilly music, a little bit bluegrass, country type music, but they're also writing their writing new songs, and they're all about my age, and I was like, this is really interesting. These like people my generation who are have this kind of tradition, but also doing something new, and I liked the combination, and that became my next film, Homemade Hillbilly Jam. So it always one film kind of led to the next, and then I was touring around the U.S. with Homemade Hillbilly Jam with my buddy Matt, my closest creative collaborator, collaborator Matt Sweetwood. He's an American guy who lives here in Potsdam, and and then we started shooting the next film, Forgetting Dad, about my father's amnesia. And because we were already, we just took equipment with us. We were invited to some film festivals and then we visited some of my relatives and just started shooting the next film. So one kind of one film has kind of evolved into the next, next one. And just keeps happening that way. Yeah. You know, the, the idea is kind of, you know, I read a lot of newspapers and read, read a lot of stuff online and just know various people. And then I've maybe I'm in a privileged position. I've been able to follow my own interests and for the you know, I've had ideas that didn't go anywhere. I couldn't get money for them. But the projects that I have felt most passionately about, I've been able to make so far. So I think I'm pretty lucky in that regard. There was never a lot of money to do it, but that's not really my main motivation.
0: Yeah, it can, can be luck, but like there is also this saying, I... I doesn't come right now but like luck is the intersection of um like opportunity and hard work or Mm. something like this so it it is kind of luck but yeah i think you're able to 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 get to do these projects because of these you know like you have a proven story that you you can deliver in the story and it's just an opportunity arises and when they combine many people like oh that was lucky but in the end well (laughs) i think you have to
1: have if you really want to if you if you seriously want to Make a career out of being a filmmaker. You have to have really thick skin. You have to. You have to. Um, you have to accept the fact that you're gonna get rejected a lot of times. You're gonna propose projects and people aren't gonna take them. You're gonna submit films to film festivals. It'll, they'll be turned down. Um, that's just part of the deal. And you know, I would say, with film festivals, for instance, I get into maybe my films get into maybe ten percent of the festivals that we send send them to it's it's can be really painful to get rejected from the ones where i where i really want to show show the film and it's also with the funding process it's like that too and and i used to take it personally and felt like i was being rejected but at some point i realized that it's no i got to meet festival pro uh, film festival programmers and tv station uh, um commissioning editors and would just hear about their process of selecting projects. And at some point I realized that, you know, what I wanted, the film that I had at that point was just not the right fit for what they needed at that point in time. But it doesn't mean that they don't like me. It just means that maybe we won't do business together until the next film or the one after that. So I've, i tried to adopt a, a long-term approach. And my attitude is that, you know, I want to keep making films till I, drop dead basically (laughs) so i've got to concentrate on uh really thinking about what is it in life that really interests me that i want to spend years you know with these long films they take several years to make so i've it's like what do i really want to spend several years working on every day what and because if it's something that you don't feel passionately about and you have to go to the editing room and you have to look at this footage every day and you don't like the people that you're looking at that's a, that's really not very pleasant
0: <laughs> yeah so i can imagine i can imagine so yeah and so then another question that i had that like i've been on it like uh, some time ago i had no idea how was the process is the funding process to get a film like i didn't know but i don't know if you go through the same process but many people you, like you establish um what is in american LLC or a here mm-hmm. just for like this is a kind of a company. The film mm-hmm. itself turns itself yep. into a company, and then you can basically do what startups do here, like oh, I give you one percent of the film, and then you get the returns. Like, how how is the funding process? How do you do? You do That's this? a very
1: American way to do it. And yeah. in, 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 in here, in, here in Germany, it usually doesn't work that way. Um, also in the U.S., people also form LLCs a lot of times because they're afraid of if they get sued, then they can just close down the company and it won't affect their own personal assets. It's it's really a legal financial reason. Here, um, I have my own little one-man production company, Our Man in Berlin, which I set up specifically to be able to apply to certain kinds of funding that I could not apply to as an individual person. Um, it hasn't worked that well. And <laughs> in, in most cases, my big projects, I work together with established production companies that have a track record. And that have their contacts and are just better at raising money than I am. Because that's the part of filmmaking that I don't really like. I don't like producing. It's just not It's not something I enjoy doing. But I do have to, um, I realized at some point that I have to pitch. I always have to pitch projects. And that's part of the deal. I have to write proposals and I have to pitch projects. And um, it's great if you can pitch together with, a producer who's the money person, because then I can, I can focus on the content. We, 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 um, go up on stage as a team and I'm like the guy at the content guy and the producer is the money guy. And that gives the financers confidence because they want to see that it's not just a director who's going to get overwhelmed by all the money issues, which can be, they want to see that we're working together as a team and they want to talk content with me and they want to talk business with my business partner. And that's when it works the best. So um, I would say if like when you're starting out, it's really great to at least have one partner working with you and that you have different strengths um, so that you can complement each other. And if the, it's great if you have someone who's maybe a little more creative or a little more a, a good editor or a good camera person or something. And the other person is a good business person. And, and, and good at writing proposals and correspondence and likes to schmooze at parties and stuff and try to get funders. Because then it, it, it tends to work better.
0: Another thing that I wanted to ask you is about, like, the team. As you were saying, like, oh, it's good that you can focus on the creative side and then you have, like, the, the producer who is, like, the money guy, you know? Um, and many people, like, in the beginning, especially, you have to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you start to grow as a filmmaker, like... Um, what are the people you think that it's like um, crucial that you can do the the work that is not your creative input, so you can focus on, yeah, what is your job, which is like telling the story. Yeah, I think it's it's important
1: if you can early on, it, no matter how small your team is, um, agree on what your goal is, what your common goal is, and then break it down into what steps need to be taken to get to that point, and then. You'll see that some of them are really administrative, business typey things, raising money and organizing things, and some are actually the more maybe creative stuff, actually going out and shooting things, and then you start making checklists and stuff and, and go from there. Um, yeah. And and the way to get things starting, um, for me, going to pitching events has, has been an important part of my career, and this these are usually connected to some film festival you can apply as even if you're an unknown filmmaker you still have a chance you can apply there are usually some slots that they're looking to discover new talent and so you have to apply with some kind of a written proposal usually through the festival websites and then if you're selected a lot of these festivals offer pitch workshops which can be really good you have you go for a day or two and they have professional people who help train you so that you can pitch that your presentation's really good. They'll help you shape your story in, in a more concise way. Um, they'll also help you with your pitch trailer, because you always have to show some kind of footage. So that can be a really great experience to get your foot in the door at some kind of a big film festival and, and pitching event. Um, I always recommend to people that look at the films that you really love, that you've seen, and study the credits at the end, and look at who produced it, which companies were involved, who were the funders. And then it's really easy these days, you know, look at the website, the, fund, the, the production company's website. Find out how you can get in touch with them. What else have they produced? Try to get a meeting with them so that you could pitch your idea. That's I uh, would usually recommend going trying to work through established production companies to get your foot in the door. And you can also look at the funders. And But if you're an unknown person and going straight to a funder, that's a little tricky. It's usually... Better to go through a production company and they have all their contacts and, and they'll, they'll go that
0: way. Yeah, that, that was actually my next question. Like when you have the idea who you pitch to. So it's basically like you probably have more options, but production companies is the one that makes sense. Because everything you said, you know, like mm-hmm. they already have um, the contacts and everything. So we will make the, the, the whole process from idea to bringing it to life easier. And another thing I wanted to ask you, talked about film festivals when the film is done like you finish editing and now it's time to show you know um what is is there like uh, any strategy or like you you are selected picking any film festivals there is like oh i want to apply for this film festival because it's more related to the story Mm. or it's like oh no i'm applying this because it's it's a big one and then it's like more prestige or the other way around like Oh, I'm going to try to go for the small dogs first, like mm. the less recognized mm. so I can get the foot in the door. And then because I'm accepted, maybe I can get accepted, like change right. a bit the visibility of the film. Right? Is there any strategy that you follow to send the films to festivals, yeah. which festivals? Well,
1: first, you need to really honestly look at what you have and try to, try to bring in some outside people who will give you an honest opinion about the film. Is this something that really could go to, to the Berlinala or Sundance or something like that or is it something that's maybe not quite that good but the general rule is it's the film festival world's kind of like a pyramid shaped and that the top festivals are up you know up here at the top you'll have like Sundance at Berlinala cannes Venice Locarno Toronto festivals like that and if you can get into them they'll open all these doors and all the festivals that are further down like you know B festivals or small regional festivals they will. They all go, their programmers go to the big festivals or they get the catalogs and they look for films there and you'll start getting invitations automatically. But if you start further down the pyramid, you can't go back up. That's yeah. always, so if, you're, if you don't even try to get into the really big ones, you're never going to get there. So basically you have to be ready to, to get a lot of rejections, but it just takes like one really good one to say yes and that can open a lot of doors for you
0: yeah nice but yeah this is interesting because i guess for that to be able to achieve that the budget that you need to send to this film festivals is also like the entrance fee this kind so do you already get like okay we're probably gonna get rejected on the like top two tiers so it's like we're gonna have to first try this and like it's i don't know the fees like 500 euros it's there but like we know that this is like an investment maybe we go maybe not but we have to try it how, how is it you have to
1: you have to really think about it. you you should budget some fees for marketing and expenses that which includes film festival fees um you have to really be kind of strategic certain you know different festivals have different focuses if you say like locarno in switzerland is a really great festival for emerging filmmakers for like first and second time filmmakers that's kind of their special profile you know they're not probably going to show a film from someone my age because i'm i'm already kind of out of that okay that's that's their special focus um the different sections of the Berlinale have different focuses. If you're doing something a little more experimental, you'll be more of maybe something for the Forum section or Forum Expanded. That's something to think about. Um, so you, you need to do your research. Look at these festivals. What types of films are there? Are they showing? Do you even fit maybe into that category? And then another something. Uh, another we haven't talked about sales agent. The role the roles of sales agents. These are people who are. Um, take films and they get them into film festivals and make television deals which are still um, a big source of income for finished film they are a little different than distributors distributors are the ones who get films into movie theaters but the sales agent comes kind of before that and they're the, and if you can get a sales agent interested they can get your film into a lot of festivals because they have all those connections and um, And I had that experience with one film, my one film, Forgetting Dad, that I had a sales agent when we got invited to the documentary festival in Amsterdam, ITFA, which is the the largest documentary festival in the world. We got accepted in the main competition. I already knew this agent. He had rejected three of my previous films, but we stayed in touch. I called him up right away when we got accepted, and he said, send me a link, and he watched it right away, and he said, I want it, and then he launched the film. So when it played in Amsterdam he made sure that his buyers all saw the film and that opened a lot of doors. I got invited to a lot of film festivals and stuff. So that, that's the best way (laughs) (laughs) if you could do it. And again, sales agents, these are companies They have websites. You can look at what types of films they have and be strategic. Don't, if, if they specialize only in nature films and you made a, a music documentary, don't talk, don't even waste these people's time. You just really, you have to do your homework and, almost everything's online these days. So it's just, you know, look at some websites.
0: Yeah, like you just said, like, almost everything is online. And, and it's funny because I'm, like, seeing right now um, that many people, they're trying to use the internet and, like, the, the influence to cut down some of these steps, you know. Um, there is this guy, um, Danny Griffiths, he's just doing his feature film, and it's all through, like, YouTube Influence, and it's open up this like whole new world mm-hmm. of like, oh, I don't have to do all of these things to get the film made because I can be like, uh, for example, content creator mm-hmm. these days and talk about filmmaking mm-hmm. and just my audience can help me. Or there's also other people that have influence in this Internet yeah. age, let's say, that you can find monies in other ways, you know, mm-hmm. so. Um, and and this is again like you 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 didn't have any of these back then, you're right. so you had to go to the traditional film way, right? Mm. Um, I'm curious to to get your thoughts about. Um, yeah, there is the traditional film like path, which is like yo, oh, you go to film school, you start like assisting, and then you become a more like start directing, and then you get you do the first film, and it is natural progression, right? Um, but these days you can also do a lot of the learning, not in a film school, but like in YouTube or something. Yeah. Do you think like how if you had to start over, basically, you know, like with all these resources you have today, do you think this traditional way is still the way to go? Or like how is it the, the, the landscape today for someone who is starting out? Uh,
1: I don't think there's any one recipe that works for everyone. If you're someone – if you're a really charismatic person who has, who's who's very active in social media and stuff, you might be able to just be a content – you might be able to build your own audience very effectively and effortlessly. It might come very naturally to you, and you become a content creator, and YouTube is your place. That's great. That's just um, – if you can do it, great. I mean I've, I've been through so many distribution workshops in the last years trying to teach – old guys like me, new tricks, and trying to figure out how to get to our audience directly so that we can get rid of some of the gatekeepers in between who are like sometimes really standing in our way or they're taking too much money that we think should be our money. So if you can get around, find ways around gatekeepers and go directly to your audience, it's great. But One big challenge, though, that we have to keep in mind is that there's an entire generation that has grown up expecting free content. And... That makes it really difficult. There's, there's a mentality in people um, that they shouldn't have to pay to see films or to listen to music. And that makes it very difficult as someone who's creating a creative person. It's like we have to get our money from someplace. So everyone's got to develop their own strategies for how you can do it. If you've, get, um, if you've got, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of subscribers on YouTube, then you can monetize and, and you can make money directly by, by going directly to your viewers. If, if you don't go that path, you, you might need to still get money from TV stations or, or, or try to go that way, film funds and stuff like that. There's, there's no right way. I'm always experimenting. I'm always trying to find new ways. With, with Each each film I've made has been produced in a slightly different way. So I, I still haven't I, – I guess I really haven't quite figured it out. I'm, I'm, I'm still, I, I still think – I always have on the back of my mind that there might be a better way to do things. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, just you try things, try, 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 try everything, and, and
0: some, hopefully something will stick. Um, OK, perfect. So one last question so we can wrap up. Um, well, someone of our listeners, maybe they're studying, they want to be like a documentary filmmaker as well. And regardless of the path, What would be, like, the first things to learn? um, Do you first try to focus on, like, okay, I'm going to learn the camera stuff all first because then I can get it out of the way and focus on the story? Or you think, like, maybe you can start with the story and the camera you learn on the go? Is there any, like, from experience, like, some kind of path, not in, like, film school or anything, but, like, what skills you should learn and mm-hmm. like what people you should look for like you know, to progress as a filmmaker mm-hmm. if you're just starting out?
1: I'd say the number one most important skill as a documentary filmmaker is to be a good listener. It really comes down to that. You know, I sometimes think of myself as a professional listener because my experience has been that a lot of people I film with are really appreciative that I'm there and I just listen to the stories, listen to them, because a lot of people are just really lonely. They have things, something they feel passionate about in life and they have no one to talk to. Or everyone around him has has already heard these stories over and over again. And if you come there as a new person and you really listen to people, and ask questions that are relevant to them then they'll open up for you and in a best case scenario you bring along a friend who happens to be good with a camera and then you can capture some magic <laughs> it's really tough if you just try to do everything yourself i really encourage people to try to get at least one person to kind of team together and because i've i've always had like a sound guy or a camera person with me who who notices something that i don't notice and maybe they like hey, why don't you ask them that question? And sometimes it's something really important that I just missed for some reason because they are observing the situation from a different perspective than I am. And and it's it really comes down to teamwork. Whether you have a small team or a big team, I really encourage people to try to not do everything themselves.
0: Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, I think with that we... We wrap up this episode podcast. Thanks a lot for being here to share your your knowledge. I, myself, learned a lot. I hope the listeners could get a lot of value out of this. And, yeah, excited to see your next projects, your next films. (laughs) And see you in the next episode, in our events, our social media. We'll see you guys in the next one. And until then, keep creating.